What's up, everyone? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to episode 42 of the Hashishin, presented by Rosin Evolution. You can visit at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, you'll hear from Marshall, better known as Weed Pray Love. He tells us about how his passion for cannabis propelled him to leave his career in accounting. He talks to us about popping seeds, flavor chasing, his aspirations to be in the regulated market long term, and much more. So definitely stay tuned for that. Shout out to every person that makes up our community on Patreon. I'm incredibly thankful to each of you for allowing us to continue producing episodes. If you would ever like to or can support the podcast, you can do so at patreon.com backslash the hashishin. That's the hashish I-N-N, through the link in our Instagram profile at the hashishin or on our website thehashishin.com. I also wanted to take a moment to invite you all to join us on September 16th and 17th in Los Angeles, California for the first ever The Smoking Jacket, an immersive two-day live hash experience, which includes live hash panels hosted by yours truly, featuring folks like The Cuban Grower, the guys from 710 Labs, Ogre Farms, The Real Cannabis Chris, Simply Adam, and many more. The experience also includes a hash tasting, educational demos, an epic merch table, and a friendly hash rosin competition on the second day. Check out all the ticket types on Eventbrite. You can find the Eventbrite link to the smoking jacket through our Instagram bio or again at thehashishin.com. You can click on events. We hope to see you in LA on September 16th and 17th for a unique hash experience. Shout out to our awesome sponsors, especially our main sponsor, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game, who again, you can find at rosinevolution.com, where you can find everything you need to make rosin, including high quality rosin bags, hash wash bags that are made of the same high quality material, parchment, pre-presses, and the best customer service around. They're trusted by some of the most respected producers in the country. So if you wash hash or press rosin, visit them on Instagram at rosinevolution100 on their website, rosinevolution.com and save 5% on your entire purchase by using the letters THI, the number 710. That's THI 710 saves you 5% at rosinevolution.com. Shout out to our homies and sponsors, Powers Plates, the small batch rosin press company, where you can visit at powersplates.com. There you'll find the highest grade rosin press on the market, which also happen to be the best looking plates on the market. Whether you decide to go with their sleek gold or black anodized finish, or their eye-catching lava or teal splash design, rest assured they're made of the highest quality components They're assembled and tested one by one to make sure that you have a great experience from your very first run to your very last, making sure you never need another press along the way. So if you're in the market for a rosin press, go grab your favorite hash makers, favorite hash makers rosin press at powersplates.com and save $75 off any Powersplates press by using our exclusive savings code the letters THI, again, THI saves you $75 at powersplates.com. Shout out to our homies and sponsors, Six Star Society, 
your solventless apparel company, where you can visit at sixstarsociety.com, where you can find a variety of gear to show your love for the resin, whether you're out and about and you could use a handy hash gym cinch bag to carry your gear, or you're taking dabs in your cozy hasha sweatpants and six star socks. You can find it all at sixstarsociety.com or on Instagram at the number six underscore star underscore society. And don't miss out on some of their newest designs like their Melt TV t-shirt, great for the summer, or their embroidered full melt hoodie and save 5% by using our savings code, the letters T-H-I at sixstarsociety.com. And last but never least, shout out to Rocky Mountain High Seed Bank, where you can visit at RockyMountainHigh719.org, where Rocky continues to curate a great selection of genetics for you to hunt through your garden. They recently dropped the Juicy Cubes from Terp Fountain Genetics, which was a Z-Cube cross, which again, Rocky runs himself. He stands true to all his gear. He's running it. He believes in the seeds he's putting out and the breeders behind them. So if you're looking for some fire genetics to search through your garden, whether it's Bloom Seed Co. gear, in-house genetic gear, or Rocky's own gear, then visit him at RockyMountainHigh719.org and use our savings code, the letters T-H-I, to save a generous 25% off your entire order at RockyMountainHigh719.org. Again, T-H-I saves you a quarter off the price of your entire order at RockyMountainHigh719.org. I really appreciate you listening and I hope you enjoy the episode. Today, I'm really excited to be here with Marshall, AKA Weed Pray Love, based out of Colorado, who you can follow on Instagram at WeedPrayLove. Welcome, Marshall. I appreciate you taking the time not only to talk, but also being open to speaking with me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me, Shigorum. It's uh, cool what you're doing. I've been a fan of it for a while, and uh, you know, I was excited that you reached out to me. Yeah, man. Thank you. I'm always appreciative of people's trust in these situations. Like we talked about a little privately last time, these conversations are still, I guess you could call it a little risque or kind of taboo. You know, I've had people reach out from the U.S. and even from abroad saying like, this is cool, but it almost feels like a pirate radio type thing. So it's interesting as things change, as people's mentality towards cannabis changes and obviously laws and things of the nature how these things begin to kind of become a little more normalized, if you want to call it that. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, when you look at the size of industry that currently exists in the nation and it's still federally illegal, you know, you've got to understand that we're in a time where it's like the end of prohibition, you know what I mean? So like you said, it's becoming a little bit more loose to talk about it. And, uh, at least, you know, to some extent. So yeah, for sure, man, it, it'll be uh, fun chatting. Yeah, I agree. You actually mentioned to me last time that you went to an event, I think you said maybe it was Las Vegas and you just were amazed at basically how much money is in and around cannabis at this point. Yeah, it, uh, that was MJ BizCon um, last fall. <laughs> it's crazy to see the amount of vendors. I mean, these giant trade show hallways are filled up with thousands of participants. It's just, it's wild to see every avenue of cannabis has now been turned into like a professional function. You know, there's like legit 
anything you can think of, you know, from labeling printers and software, obviously to grow equipment and controls and my God, so many different, different light vendors and, you know, and then the side, you know, on side of that, just consulting. And I mean, anything you could think of, there was at least a handful of companies there represented with a booth trying to tell you about their information service or product, you know? So it was like a real wake up call, just how far cannabis has come how much it is in the public spotlight and, you know, for the States that are still waiting to turn on, it's amazing what has happened prior to, you know, uh, quite a, you know, a number of States going legal versus like some of the first States that ever did it, you know, the California, Colorado, you know, small group or whatnot, but yeah, it's cool to see. It's, it's, uh, it's cool to, you know, just, I guess, honor and recognize how far cannabis has come out of like the cracks and the shadows where, you know, when I grew up in in the nineties in Texas and it, it was like, you don't talk about it. It's not mentioned. If you did, it was trouble. And, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff, the stigmas are, are still working their way out, but have, have large been kind of released. It's interesting also at the pace that it's happening, it seems to be happening kind of at a more rapid clip at this point. I'm curious, what was it that you were at that conference for? Like, what were you looking for? Were you? Looking- um, I, I was out there uh, with a group that had a booth. Shout out Mike and Agrotech. They are a, you know, controls company, basically. Um, so grow controls. We've been using their equipment for seven years, eight years, whatever it is at this point. And uh, I was out there with Mike meeting contacts and whatnot. You know, we've been, we can get into it more later, I'm, I'm sure. But we've been in the caregiver world for a number of years and uh i'd like to participate on you know the the full scale commercial wave that's happening with the right group so i was out there for contacts and meet some of the people that he knows operating in the industry cool yeah because you said one of the things that has been most exciting to you outside of being able to grow the plant is kind of riding this wave that you mentioned in multiple senses basically to where it's been like a wave of genetics a wave of technology yeah, it's been cool. And even just like you said, genetics and, and where hash has gone and the technology surrounding the grow, you know, in, in the form of controls and lights and irrigation and automation and all these things that are really making it easy now for home growers, you know, just on the hobby level or, you know, all the way up to full scale commercial production to uh, produce a consistent quality product. So, um, yeah, it's been um, it's been awesome. So since you brought it up. Let's talk about agrotech a little bit, because this is a system, like you said, you've been using for a while now. And obviously through going through your feed, it seems like it's become pretty important to you. Tell me about why you like it. And also compared to some of the other systems, like you mentioned to me that are similar, but much more expensive, let's say. Uh, It was just kind of random that I fell into a relationship with uh, agrotech. We met in one of the first cannabis cups, it might've even been a trade show before that, like the big industry show. And Mike from Agrotech had a standing relationship with the guys um, from Strain Hunters. And they were in town um, representing, I think they were dropping a feed line at that point, um, a nutrient line. So I was actually at the show with some friends, Kyle 710, Miss Green Thumb. Um, we bumped into Peter Muller. He's a glass blower. And we ran into Franco, RIP Franco. And uh, we were like, holy shit, we were on our way out of the, of the venue. 
And uh, when we saw him, we we're like, we got to have a session. So we go back inside and we start taking dabs. Um, and in the booth at the same time that we're having this great time was, was Mike uh, from Agrotech. And we just started chatting and uh, he was, you know, a proponent, obviously, of getting his equipment out there. We had a decent following on Instagram at the time. I also had a buddy shout out Arcade that was using their equipment. And at this point, I'm just like timers in the wall and like CO2 units that just came on for 15 minutes out of an hour and it wasn't really dialed in or anything like that. So yeah, after we met, um, he showed me kind of his line of products. And after seeing uh, my buddy, he have so much success with it we decided to get on board. But, you know, it, it's just automation is always easier once everything is dialed in. Obviously with a caveat, sometimes things can go wrong if you don't have it set up appropriately. But once everything is set up right, um, you're usually pretty good. And this allowed us to, you know, not have to be there to make sure the timer fired and lights came on. And we always had weird problems like that before we went to a, a full controlled environment where it's monitoring CO2 levels and turning on the the valve accordingly and, and all that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, it was definitely a step in the direction of, you know, a more regimented gig or however you want to look at it, but took it from a little bit more hobby to a little bit more, you know, call it respectable once you had it all dialed in with computers and monitors and, you know, sensors and whatnot all over the place. And what do you feel like it's brought your plants? I don't know. I mean, when we took on, I guess, the irrigation system, uh, before that we were hand watering and we've been in seven gallon pots. Um, we're in Colorado, you know, so we're very aware of our plant count and whatnot, which has kept us in larger pots and just the nature of the physical labor required to hand water. We were feeding like close to a gallon and a half every other day once plants were big in flower. So we weren't watering both flower rooms that we have more than once a day. Um, when we added the irrigation system, now there was way less labor. We could put it on a calendar, the things firing automatically. So like as far as bringing to the plants, um, we saw their call it increased growth or whatnot, just by our increasing the frequency of our watering and dropping the volume, you know, basically paying more attention to it, to the drybacks involved in the medium. So they were able to produce more cannabis in the same space by going to this automated irrigation. But, you know, that, that was just a function of our inability to spend every minute of every day inside the barn. You know, it gets tedious when you have to hand water every plant every day because they don't run on your schedule. You're absolutely on theirs. Do you feel like adding automation has led you to spend less time with your plants? I don't think that's the case, really. I think it frees you up to do more things in the garden versus just like watering. You know, it's a laborious task to have to lug the hose around and, you know, slide around on a, on a little shop chair. Like just the fact that I can even just stand in the room and maybe pluck or train while the watering is happening. It was like just such a gift. So it's really an impact for the grower who spends a lot of time in a garden that needs daily attention. If you're just like a hobby guy and you want to set up a tent, like you can do that pretty easy. But as far as a step in the direction of like a commercial level product, a commercial grade product, you know, that's designed, built and made, uh, assembled in the USA, it's like a sweet entry point into the market. But yeah, for us, it was just a savior, to be honest, like, automation has really opened up our time to spend doing other things. 
whether that be in the garden or not. It's just, it's nice to not have to hand water everything all the time. And do you see it being a more feasible way to, for example, scale up if there were ever a goal or ambition of yours? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the equipment that we're using is fully capable of running any kind of keg I would get into or be part of designing. Definitely. Before we get any further into the garden, uh, I wanted to give a shout out to your wife and gardener partner, the baby gangsta boo. <laughs> yeah. Shout out my wife. Yeah. Baby gangsta boo. She has been like a critical part of just like the development of me being able to focus on cannabis. You know, we met serendipitously, I think is how you use it, but at a cannabis cup in Denver back in 2015. And we were both previously from the professional world and kind of moved out from another state to Colorado with a dream. And uh, I was there with some buddies and she was there. She was working at Native Roots at the time and she was walking around the festival with a friend and I knew the friend. So the friend stopped and dabbed with us at this booth and that's where I met her and um, we hit it off right away, man. Cool. Yeah. And I asked you this earlier, actually, is like, what do you feel she's brought to the garden in particular? Definitely like order. I think I was a little loose with things before she started participating. So she keeps me like focused as far as like tasks and things like that. Like now it's kind of like second nature. I can, we've been doing our schedule for a long time. So, you know, it's, it's humming. We'll, we'll say that, but um, as far as like dialing everything in and, you know, getting the processes in line, like she was an integral part of that. She started off, you know, when she helped me with the garden a lot more than just kind of here and there, she took over like moms and veg. And like, I really noticed like a quality of our like cuts, like improve. Like she was just, you know, she's just good with plants. So uh, she brings a lot to the garden. Do you think that there is something that certain people have almost a natural feel for like being a gardener? Yeah, I definitely think so. You know, there's some people that you can give like step-by-step instructions on how to like do this with a plant or whether that's cannabis or not, like just a garden in general, vegetables and like flowers and stuff. And there are other people that just shine kind of naturally. I mean, everybody, I think it just is really about like the interest in the plant. Like for me, like I've always just been like fascinated by like the growing cannabis plant, like veggies and stuff. I I wasn't into until, you know, semi recently, but like I've been, you know, I'm a little over 40, turned 41 later this year. And I started smoking when I was 12. So like, it's been the majority of my life. And I remember the first time I saw like a growing cannabis plant, I was just like blown away. Like, holy shit. Like how does this thing even exist? So like not everybody has that reaction to plants and like, I still geek out heavy over like roots, you know, like a cut starts growing roots and they're white and fuzzy. And I'm like, Oh my God, I got to take a picture of this or I got to, you know, whatever it is. Like, it's just like an affinity for the plant. And I think the plants respond to that. So, you know, if you're into the growing things and you put some effort into it, like they'll definitely respond. So you brought up the fact that both your wife and yourself come from the professional world. Mm-hmm. You and I spoke privately about how you transitioned from being a CPA, basically. In- yeah, yeah. I mean, no, basically about it. I was a CPA. I, you <laughs> know, I, I graduated uh, Boulder 2004 um, and spent 10 years as an accountant and did like private and public and like I could do it, but I was totally a different person during the day than I was when I left work. 
and the people that I wanted to be around were not the people that I was like seeing during the day. And we didn't have shit to talk about at lunch. They wanted to talk about the accounting gig. And I'm like, oh, we're at work. What do you mean you want to talk about work? Like I didn't have like a passion for it at all. So um, it was at the end of kind of, you know, my professional life that I was working as a controller, I guess, if you will, of a commercial real estate company. And uh, we controlled quite a bit of assets, the company did. But as big and you know, impressive as it was, like I was at my buddy's house tending to our two little plants in a closet on my lunch break, <laughs> taking long lunches. And people were like, where are you? And I was sorry, you know, I got hung up, whatever. But like, it's because I had to go see my plants. And like that shit was more important to me really than the work. And once I had like a realization that like, which came with some help from some friends, but once I had that realization um, that I didn't want to be an accountant, and even though I might succeed and I might be comfortable as, you know, society might call it, <laughs> I was going to be fucking miserable. And uh, I had a buddy, you know, shout Kyle, um, 710. He uh, was one of the first people I met when Instagram was just like barely young or just barely started, whatever. And he had told me, you know, I, I'd respect him. We became really good friends and uh, we linked over like shatter. This is the time that, you know, concentrates were really hitting Texas. We, he was into glass. I was into glass. Like we just became really good friends. And when he told me, Hey, I'm packing up shop in Texas and I'm moving to Colorado because of the laws. And, you know, I can do this in a certain fashion and it's legal and blah, blah, blah. I was like in this crazy place, like, you know, I'm, they're going to give me this salary. And he's like, you know, I, I, I don't know what you mean by that. Like, I'm going to go do what I love and I'm going to be my own boss. And like, I'm going to sit, you know, on my couch when I want to, in my comfortable clothes. And I'm going to make sure what I need to get done gets done, but it's going to be on something I'm excited about. And it just like totally blew my mind. Cause you know, I was raised where it was like salary at a big corporation. Like that's what you do. And, uh, when, I had spent so much time with him and my group of friends at the time, you know, opening my eyes, like, cause you know, I was like 30 something at the time and is just seeing like how more people live and everybody doesn't do nine to five. And, and that isn't everyone's goal and all that kind of shit. It was like, wow, I have an opportunity here to follow this dream. And I know cannabis is going to keep going with momentum. And I'd be like excited about the industry, talking to people about concentrates and like, they're freaking out. Like, cause I'm having the conversation in public. Like I remember I went on a date with this chick and she was like, man, I had a great time, but like, you're way too into cannabis. And like, I, I she was like, you need to go move to Cali or Colorado where it's happening. Cause clearly you're hyped. I was like, word, well, I'm fucking out. And uh, I did. I followed uh, Kyle and uh, his gal, Sonia, to Colorado. Um, shout Adam, too, for kind of giving me the push. But uh, it was um, it was a wild times, you know, like, you know, you got to think of like my folks and shit like that. Like they helped me get through college. And, you know, I got a master's in accounting and was a CPA. And I was like, I'm leaving all of that. And it was like, it took a lot to maintain like the relationship and uh, thank God we got through it. And, you know, it was a, a crazy transition. Like I said, we just, both my wife and I like had to follow our passion and she, she had the professional background in, in the medical industry and was like doing like major surgeries, like in, in the room, like for like all kinds of shit, like hip replacements and all this stuff. And she'd be in her car getting high at lunch. You know what I mean? We were both like the same way. Like, obviously it wasn't a problem, but we're like, you know, 
once you kind of get over like the stigma of cannabis and whatnot, like, yeah, I used to go through like every day and I still do. I wake up and I smoke in the morning, I have it with my coffee and all that kind of shit. So, you know, I mean, there, there was a lot of change that happened for both of us and we managed to meet at the right time um, for both of us. And yeah, it was, it's an, it's been an awesome transition. Yeah. That's awesome, man. So let's talk about Boulder a little bit, because I feel like a couple things happened there. You were there for college, right? You said, yeah, absolutely. My, um, you know, my folks split up when I was young, I was born in Denver and my dad moved to Texas. And that was when I was starting seventh grade. And when I went down to Texas with him, my mom moved from Denver where we were at up to Boulder. So like the first time I visited her, I was like enamored with the city and just like, this is where I have to go. I'm going here. Cause you know, I was definitely, I'm going to secondary school and you know, that was the gig and I loved the town and uh, clearly being a stoner, like Boulder was a fucking center, you know, for like the fire in town and, or in the state, I should say. So like every time I'd go visit my mom, I'd go down to Pearl street and, you know, talk to some dude that was on Pearl street, <laughs> you know, like for the fire and I'll go up to the hill, talk to this dude or whatever it was. But you know, the town was very, liberal and fun and, and all that shit. So yeah, Boulder was a cool place to go to school. We had a really good time. <laughs> and Boulder was the first time that you popped any cannabis seeds. Yeah, actually that's where my uh, cannabis cultivation commenced. Um, I had a, a buddy and his older brother um, who was just as much of a stoner as myself. Shout out John. <laughs> he uh, had like a bag of bag seeds and one of my other buddies, Tyler had shown me my first growing cannabis plant live. I was like blown away. He had like five plants under one 150 watt HPS in a closet. And he told me about them when he was like just about to harvest them. So like I got to see like mature plants and I was just like fucking floored. So when I asked him to show me how to grow, which is crazy when we look on or look back on what, what the tech was. But uh, John hooked me up with some seeds from those bags that he'd been collecting. And he always had the connect on fireweed. So um, the, the seeds were super fire. And uh, I had like 15 plants under 250 watt HPSs in a closet. Um, I lived in a fraternity house at the time. We were in the basement. So like the whole back stairwell like all the way to the fucking attic was just like reeking of weed. <laughs> I remember tweaking one time because there was like some cops that came in for a party and they went like up the stairs. And if they would have come down and opened the door, like it, it was like beaming light in my closet. So we would have been busted for sure. But yeah, dude, it was, it was a great experience. Like it really opened my eyes to like how much I enjoyed growing weed. Um, but obviously then I took, you know, the rest of school and the accounting direction. So it wasn't until like, like I said, when I was working on my last gig in the professional world, that my buddy said, Hey, let's grow at my house if you want to grow again. So at first we, we grew two times. We had to shut it down. <laughs> he had an ex-girlfriend that like went crazy and was like throwing the plants in the yard and like screaming, like she was going to fucking call the cops or some like crazy ass shit. So we shut it down for a long time. But at that point it was sick. It was like a bottom unit that was a, a veg and the, the top portion was a flower and we had our little perpetual garden. and It was a good time. But when we shut it down and we opened it back up, it was just um, two plants in a closet or I guess one plant in each of two closets in the same room. And we had a really good time. And that's when I was buddies with Kyle and 
you know, he was being coy about the fact that he had some rooms going and I was like oh, proud of my two plants or whatever. But, you know, it just really opened my eyes to like my excitement surrounding growing cannabis. Like I said, I'm still like a nerd, like when seeds start to germinate and when they break the seed, you know, the the surface of the soil, like I, I just really enjoy the experience of like kind of nursing that along and being there for it. So once I realized, you know, like I, I lived in Toronto for about four and a half, five years, once I realized that I had said to myself at the time, like I was working as an accountant, obviously, but I had said to myself at the time, man, I'd take half the money I'm making right now just to be happy with what I'm doing you know, if I could only make like what it takes to pay the bills, but I got to do something that I enjoyed, like I would do it. So like once I said, Kyle was moving up here and I kind of like took that step back and like looked at my life and like the direction I wanted it to go in and like all this shit, it was like clear that like my passion surrounding growing the cannabis plant had been there from when I was in college all the way through my professional career. And I got to be who I am around like everybody. Like I didn't have to be one way at work and then one way when I got off. And like that kind of like peace of mind was like way worth the risk, like whatever, you know, you want to call the risk. So it was just like, and I, I talked to a bunch of people that like I respected too. And some of them were like, you're out of your fucking mind. Like you're crazy. You have this trade, stick with it. It's the safe call. And, you know, some of the other people were like, dude, you absolutely owe it to yourself to try this. And I just had to ask myself and it was real. So I was just like, yeah, I'm going for it. Yeah, that's cool, man. It's definitely not an easy decision, especially like you said, having people in your own family kind of not feeling it and other people maybe, but in the end, you got to be true to yourself. Yeah, that was like the biggest portion, I think at the end of the day, like, you know, my biggest hurdle was like the real possibility that like my folks might be like, don't call us and like that shit, like, was crushing to think that at the time. But once I realized that like, I couldn't live for what their expectation of me was and like they were raised in a different generation and cannabis wasn't a thing, you know, and like they had exposure to it. We'll just say that, but like it wasn't acceptable. So like for me to be like, no, it is acceptable. And the fucking world is coming online right now. And there's this like opportunity to be a part of something real like, I'm going to go do this. And it took like easing in. Like I said, it took small, small baby steps to get them around the corner. But yeah, for sure. Now it's, it's a whole different, different thing than it was. Back to those beans in Boulder. Not only were they the first beans you popped, but you also said that it was the first time you ever really realized that within a pack of beans, there was a bunch of stuff instead of just the same plant. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, this wasn't like a uh, pack of seeds by any means. This was like bag seeds that my buddy had gotten in like his eighths over the year. So like, but at the time seeing the variety amongst the plants that I was growing, I mean, I stuffed, like I said, 17 plants in a closet. So I didn't really know what I was doing, but at the same time, um, I got to see a lot of variety. Um, right now though, certainly like, you know, our whole, I guess my whole direction and why I started growing cannabis. Like I said, it was, I, you know, obviously I've been a consumer. I like growing the plant, but once I started like buying seeds, like I wanted like one of everything, you know? And even when I was like buying weed from a guy who had multiple flavors, I needed like an eighth of this and an eighth of that. And an eighth, you know, so it was like when I started growing weed, initially I should say when I started growing weed, it was all for personal. 
like, right. We didn't consider like the caregiver model. This was in Texas and we still were growing like a whole bunch of flavors. So um, back then, like I said, it was just buying one seed of this and one seed of that off of like some European seed bank. Um, But when I started opening up to like, you know, the caregiver market, it was, I always wanted to have like a wide variety of menus and I really didn't want to have, or I should say a wide variety of flavors on my menu. I really didn't want to have like one room full of one cup, you know, like it just, that never made sense to me. I always wanted to pop seeds. And I understand now, obviously, like how much easier it is working with the uniformity of a cut and like, you know, what you can expect from it. But for me, like the excitement of like, popping a new pack. I mean, just this last full moon, a couple of days ago, like pop four new packs, you know, we definitely have way too many strains, but like, I, I want to see like some new exciting stuff. You know, the market has kind of been offering the same thing in a bunch of different angles or package for a little while, but like the cuts have been pretty focused on like the same crosses. And like, now we're starting to see some of the projects have gone in their own direction. So like, you're still able to find new terps and, you know, new stuff that you haven't smelt or seen or tasted before. That's where, you know, the the variety and like the excitement about, you know, popping seeds really like shines through and like seeing in a flower room, like all of these different varieties. And like, then the next time when you like take clones off the mom that you've been keeping and you toss all the other ones and seeing now you've got this cut that in perpetuity you can grow and keep like i always have had way too many strains for the space that i've been growing in whether it was a closet or a room or you know a couple thousand square feet it's always been like as many as we can possibly keep just because we want to have variety yeah it definitely seems like you guys are chasing flavor and terps and different stuff basically through a bunch of different packs. Like you said, it seems like you have a lot and you brought up the full moon. What significance does that have to popping the seeds? I don't know if it's an old wives tale. I'm pretty sure that the moon's gravitational pull at a full moon is strongest and stimulates seeds to grow. I think you're supposed to take cuts at the half and, or at the, at the no moon, new moon, whatever it is and uh, plant seeds on the full. So, and it's just an easy way to keep in cycle too. I mean, you know, that's kind of one of the things about growing is like, if you're going to do it in perpetuity, you want to have your cycle times dialed. And um, for us, it's been really easy. You know, we were loose on the schedule as far as like, we're not trying to pack as many harvests in a year as we can. So we open up basically to like call it a 10 week flower and a five week veg. And being that the full moon is right around the five weeks, you know, if you're popping seeds, it just kind of fits into the schedule. Let's talk about a fan favorite subject which is popping seeds because it seems like a pretty straightforward thing. Everyone has their tech. I saw you make a post recently about it, specifically talking about what you call stragglers. Tell us your method on popping seeds and what's working and what's not. You know, I haven't tried a lot of things. I'm always open to new things. So like, this is just kind of what has worked for me. I've always been under the impression that like, if it doesn't come out of the gate vigorous, it's probably not worth growing at the end of the day. I've seen plenty of like wild terps on these like little runty, stunty plants. And when you're talking about keeping the number of strains that we do, we've got to have at least like some kind of, you know, cutoff. And like I said, um, when we were talking privately earlier, we've got some sub 2% washers, like our papaya melons. I absolutely love that terp. And it's like two is a great day. We've had it like 1.5 and I'm like, yep, keep it. 
So like at some point you got to have a cutoff and the papaya melon sticks around because it has so much flour. So like it produces almost twice as much flour as like I'm really looking for in an area. So if it has half the hash, no big deal, right? So as far as like stragglers out of the gate and with seeds, you know, we uh, were pretty like selective, you know, if something is needs a lot of help coming out of, of the casing, you know, probably just going to go ahead and toss it. The paper towel is like an easy way to keep stuff separate. I like to stack them all like in a box, you know, like the Ziploc box that I got them out of is always great for us. But like, as long as you don't over wet the paper towel or keep it too hot or anything like that, which I've done, you know, I've accidentally call it, let, let them, you know, sit for too long. And they almost like turned to mush, like a couple of them did. And it was like, you know, a learning experience. Cause I'm sure it was a couple hundred dollar pack. You know what I mean? So I, I try to be a little bit more aware of it. Paper towel has just always been easy for us, but like soaking them in, in cups, you know, I see people do that. A lot of people just go like right in like a 50 slab of uh, Rockwell cubes and just wet the whole slab. Some people put them in like their own cocoa. So, you know, there's, there's a million ways to do it. It's really about finding whatever works best for you. And when something does work, you know, it's hard to want to do something else. Like I feel maybe we've lost a couple seeds, you know, on this journey that could have been prevented if they were done like another way and not paper towel or something like that. But We've had plenty of super vigorous come uh, plants, like make it through that method, no problem and turn themselves into keepers. So I'm under the impression for the most part, like if you can't make it in our paper towel, like we don't need you around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Especially like you said, with popping so many beans, there has to be some kind of baseline to where like maybe it would come along, but you have all these other ones that are already working kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's only been a few like rounds, call it in a row of like straight keeper cuts. When you find like some that are just like amazing, like our grape cream cake, we're, we're not running that right now. And, and I said that it'd be a forever keeper, but you know, a lot of people have been exposed to it via like a cross or even just the straight cut. And, you know, the reality is things kind of lose their enamor over time. So as well as it did on both flour and hash, you know, we have to introduce seeds again. So like once you kind of move out the old keepers, then it's like the bar is even higher on what perpetually will stay around. Like I'm always popping new packs. We haven't found too many that are like super fire worth keeping recently. There are only maybe four cuts that were, and it's even in like the second testing round, but four cuts that we're hanging on to right now, like our rainbow belts 2.0 really fire. Um, We've got this shady meringue, which is super fire. It's like obviously an apple uh, fritter cross was from your highness the uh the first one i said obviously rainbow belts 2.0 that's archive seed bank but gas face is another one that we're really liking right now that's a seed junkie strain and then gastro pop um, that's apples and bananas cross from uh, compound genetics those have been like the recent ones they're like okay let's let's at least give them another shot that gastro pop i was really excited i was expecting a decent number on that wash and uh, it proved to be north of like the four and a half five percent and it's got a great turp and a great flower structure we haven't seen one of those in a long time so it's exciting but you know even on the stuff that's maybe the best weed you've ever seen like everything is still really good and you know we have the call it luxury of working with an extraction team really uh, like mile high melts and they're always willing to wash like down to the pheno or any group that we want. So like typically if call it 10, eight seeds are coming down, 
we'll group the three that are similar, four that are similar, and then like wash the one that's like got the most visual potential by touching the plant, smelling it, looking at it, whatever, to get a number on that. Um, so it's always been part of the process to like work new seeds in, find the keepers, keep the keepers around. And like, there have been plenty of people, you know, it's cool to look back on that. Like we've given our cuts to like when we stopped growing them and it's exciting to see people still crush. Like I had a homie the other day, just telling me, Oh my God, I just brought down my best room of grape cream cake ever. It was wild. One of my homies is still growing our ice cream cake. You know, we found that like four years ago and that's been like some of the best weed that we've grown. I was really sad that like so many depths of ice cream cake kind of like ruined the customer demand for it. But that's how it goes. Like with the most fire stuff that comes out, everybody wants a piece of it, which is totally understandable. Who doesn't want to grow the fire weed? But sometimes names get played out amongst the market and uh, you see the death of a cut. (laughs) Yeah, I could totally see that. But it's interesting, you know, basically that you've almost been through that cycle with something like the grape cream cake, you know, because I saw it funny enough being washed uh, at the end of last year in a video project that I did down in NorCal and it was coming off a outdoor farm. And so it's just pretty cool to see kind of how everything. Yeah. I mean, you know, shout out bloom. They've come up with a lot of fucking crosses that have been really impressive and a pleasure to grow. Yeah. they definitely seem to be killing it. Well, I'm really excited to jump back into it, but I think this would be a good opportunity for a smoke break. You down? Sweet. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Shout out to our homies and sponsors, Powers Plates, the small batch rosin press company, who you can visit at powersplates.com or on Instagram at powersplates. If you're looking for a rosin press and you want the best, you found it. Scott, owner and sole employee of Powers Plates, works hard to source the highest quality components for their systems inside and out, built to be extremely reliable, designed to work flawlessly, Their look is sleek and you can go with their more traditional gold or black anodized look or their beautiful artistic series. No matter the design, you can always count on a set of powers plates. So again, if you're in the market for a rosin press, specifically the highest grade rosin press on the market, visit powersplates at powersplates.com and use our exclusive savings code, the letters T-H-I, to save $75 at powersplates.com. I appreciate you listening and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. All right, cool. I don't usually, I guess, normally ask, but what'd you dab on? Uh, That was mint pie. It was a sea junkie cross, Cushman's times grape pie. Cushman's 11 is is male that he hit everything with. (laughs) This is obviously something you found? Yeah, definitely. One of the keepers that we had for a long time, we've let it go. Like we were talking about, the cycle continues, but my wife's favorite, for sure. It's just like a real heavy smoke. It gets you nice and high. And like every time anybody cracks the jar, I'm always like, mm, what is that? That smells good. Like it's just got a real strong grape pie note in there. And it had like awesome structure from the Cushman's. Yeah, it was a washer too. I think that one did like a four and a half, close to five. And you still had to pass it along? Yeah, you know, we like to keep it fresh. it's like it doesn't matter how good you're gonna do i don't know at some point you know it's like okay are you gonna keep some ever but they run their course you know what i mean we want to stay fresh with the new flavors you know i want to see them uh grow them taste them just as much as everybody else and 
I can only reach for like the same jar so many times um, and grow the same flower so many times before I even get a little bored, no matter how well it does like in production. Like I said earlier, it's always been about the menu and the different terp profiles that are represented in the keepers. You know, we want to have like the range and there's plenty of grape pie crosses and, you know, stuff on the grape side. So like, we don't like to keep the old stuff around with similar profiles if we're working on some of the new stuff. Cool. So let's talk about something that may go into this. What do you believe to be the true metric for someone who is farming for trichomes? I don't know. That's a really hard question to answer. Um, The true metric for someone who's going for hash, like I guess really at the end of the day, you're talking about grams per square foot of your final product, whether that's the combination of, you know, terp, like liquid terps and crystals from a BHO extraction or like finished rosin, if you're going all the way to rosin, you know, whatever, if, if it's hash or concentrate, yeah, it's gotta be your, your grams per square foot. I mean, that's like what would be considered like, I guess, measurable if you're looking for a metric to compare strains, like versus just the terpene profile. I mean, for us, like I said, having the menu and all the slots filled, that's like the goal. I want to have all the flavors represented in the jars in front of me on my table so I can dab whatever it is from, you know, bright and citrusy all the way down to like some heavy funk um, in a jar, like in front of me. So for me, that's like what I want to accomplish. But when you're talking about like what's a, a metric or a measurable goal for a trichome farmer, yeah, you're looking at finished product per square foot in dedicated space. You also brought up something interesting in the same vein of having to, in a way, think of it differently also in regards to your flowering time. So if you have a flower that has a shorter flowering time versus one that has longer, it impacts that number. Yeah, for for us, um, we try to manage everything on like a nine-week flower you're done. Like nobody's getting a 10th week in any of our gardens. We're using that for like clean and exchange and buffer days and whatnot. So we've always searched for stuff that I thought was an eight to nine week flower. And then we'll harvest in the middle of the ninth week. You know, it's only a a small handful of us. So it's like, we'll start in the middle of the ninth week, eight and a half weeks is when some of the plants come down kind of thing. So as far as like you know, they're different grow length. We try to keep it in line, but it's really like the combination when you're talking about farming for hash, it's not really so much like flower that you pull down per light or like what the washer is. Cause you know, like earlier when I was talking about papaya melons, if it's doing twice the flower weight that I'm expecting, but only a half of the return, if I'm shooting for 4% and I get two, it still averages out with the same amount of hash in the jar. Honestly, it's the less desirable scenario you'd rather have a smaller amount of flour and a larger hash return just because of working with that much cannabis you know i got to trim up more or less flour and that obviously impacts harvest time and all that kind of stuff so there's a lot that goes into selections and it's certainly not just finished product for a square foot like that's a good metric like i said but it's the combination you know of really everything and it starts with the terp like even if you don't do a lot on a finished concentrate per square foot. Like if you've got the right turf, you can stick around for sure. Like we had a wedding cake sherb crasher when uh, JBZ sent us some tester seeds 
that was just like some of the most wild terps I'd ever tasted. And like still to this day, even though we don't grow it anymore, like, man, it was just some wild new shit that like, I'll never forget. And some stuff tastes similar or whatnot. Like it was just heavy and I, I don't even know. It had to have been the sure, but mixed with like some gas and some sweetness um, from the crasher side and, and also the wedding cake. Like, I guess that's triangle mints, if I'm not mistaken. So like the TK gas component was in there heavy, but you know, that was like a terpene that stuck, even though it did shitty on flour and shitty on hash returns. So it, it's hard to like put true, like, what's the test for like a plant to stick around? Like really you got to fit a lot of bills to be a long-term sticker, but you know, Terp will get you over the mountain. You know, it's all about how the concentrate tastes at the end of the day. Nobody really cares how big your plant was or how much of a return you got. You know, the consumer (laughs) wants like fire in a jar. So like, it's always been about like a nice, like since we've gone hash rosin, at least like a wet hash, we definitely don't want anything that's going to be like a super dry wash or a super dry, you know, product. But like, yeah, like for the most part, it's just about the terpene and like the quality of the resin that we're able to extract off the plant. So you talked about earlier, for example, using touch to being determiners in which of the plants you were setting aside. And then also you talked about having up to nine weeks in a grow cycle for these cultivars. Is that pretty much kind of like a set thing where no matter where the cultivar is at that point, that's part of the R and D process. Yeah. Like we're, we're hunting for eight and a half to nine week strains. So that's definitely like, you've got to fit into that. I don't need any like fast finishers where the majority of the stuff that we're hunting or keeping around. I mean, if you look at like seeds on the market, most of them are like eight to nine week flowers. So it's rare that you're going to find stuff that's much less. If you want to go 10 weeks with some of the longer stuff, because like, you know, you're like a connoisseur like that and you're trying to push a strain, you know, there's some that'll do it. Like, you know, one of the first people I saw doing proper uh, extract and who I'm thinking of right now um, is Justin Cron, you know, up in Oregon. And like, he takes his gorilla butter 70 days and that's like pushing it. So like, even in that instance, there's not much going on longer. And it, it's hard to keep a whole stable of those because um, you won't really find any, but for us, we just haven't had the need to go that long. But, you know, when you were talking about the quality of the touch, or I guess what the the touch was like to, I guess, pick a keeper early in the game, it's, it's all about the resin quality and at least for the solventless based extraction, you know, the greasy strains typically don't wash like the hazes, the tangies, anything that you like touch with a glove and like you see like an oil slick, you know, like a slick resin. But if you touch it with a glove and you pull off and you look and it's like peppered with heads, well, you've got like big heads that have broken off from the, the neck of the trichome easily. And uh, it's a good sign, especially if you like then squeeze those in your fingers and you pull it apart and you see like resin string out between the two. Like that's the ideal texture of hash as it's live on the plant that I'm looking for in a keeper. I'm, I'm sure there's a number of people that have shared that too, but you know, that's something that we figured out pretty quick. <laughs> you know, the greasy stuff doesn't want to wash and the turps are pretty wild. And that's why it was nice for a while having both a BHO option as well as solventless, but you know, the way things go, we don't have that BHO option anymore. And, uh, it's been just like all or nothing solventless. So, Hey, if you're greasy, you're still getting washed, but like, I'm not going to grow you again. 
you know, maybe if the Terp comes back and it's like, holy shit, this is some of the best hash I've ever smelled. But typically those are like sub one and that's not what you're looking for in a washer. Like to, for most people, the bar is around 4%. I think people are happy if they've got a washer at 4%. We've been willing to, you know, stick with like the three and a half to three mark just because like we love the flavor. And uh, I've thrown too many greasy and, you know, fire flower strains away because they didn't wash. So, uh, you know, it's hard to do that from time and time again. (laughs) Were you getting rid of less of those when you were doing BHO as well? Yeah, definitely. Because like for the most part, it wasn't a sub one return. It was like two and a half or like three or something like that. And if the Terp was right, it could stick around like our ice cream cake. It did about the same in both, but it, you know, it, it was one that when we first hunted it, there were a number of greasy ones that we sent the way of BHO. And uh, I'm sure it was like a one and a half to two versus like a 0.5 to one, you know, BHO was able to capture that and retain that, that terpene where in, you know, a, a cold bath, you can see that oil slick develop. And that's just the nature of those resin glands, like the terpene. I guess the volatility of it or just the, the the ratio of it inside the head itself causes those heads to burst more easily. And being that it's like a true oil and not like a head that's containing the oil that just floats at the top of the water and you're not going to catch that in a bag. It actually just gets the bag all wet and sticky and or greasy and sticky, whatever. So uh, it's not something that's ideal to keep around for the solventless base extraction. And it sounded like to me that part of the reason that you're not doing the BHO anymore is kind of circumstantial. But now that you're doing or decided to do solventless only, has there been any changes kind of like in your practices or maybe in the way that you're approaching things? You know, I wouldn't say that it's changed so much. Obviously, we're paying a lot more attention to the quality of the resin gland, you know, whether it's going to hold its shape throughout the harvest and into the bath and, you know, be extractable. So where previously I was a little more loose, it was like, oh, it doesn't matter because I'm either going to go to BHO or solventless. So that's, that's changed a little bit. I'm identifying stuff in flower at like, you know, maybe week five, week six, that's like, damn, this is pretty greasy. Maybe we don't need to hang on to these moms for another four or five weeks until we find out what the rosin number is, you know what I mean? Cause obviously if it's week five and you still have six, seven, eight, nine, and then give the process, processor two weeks, you're talking about seven weeks, keeping one plant for seven weeks, that's daily watering. So like, certainly we're trying to weed out the plants earlier. And uh, when we're only focused on rosin or the solventless direction, then it's a lot easier to toss ones where it's like, uh, what are we going to do? Like keep it just cause the terp, like, and I haven't had anything recently that's lured me that much. It's like, nah, go ahead and get rid of it. Has it at all influenced, for example, the packs of seeds that you're popping now? Yeah, definitely. I try to be conscious of like the lineage. I'm always like hoping there's like some chem in there. I mean, you know, like the 91 or something like that. Even the D, there's like just something about like the trichome gland from chem crosses that tends to wash well and hold its head. Um, I stick away from hazes for sure. I was big into haze when we had a uh, BHO option through Kyle, when we were still making slabs and like that shit was like some of the raciest dab I've like ever smoked. It would like send me on one. So, you know, I prefer cannabis for like the calming effect. I don't really 
you know, I'm pretty kind of wound up, like if I'm not calmed or sedated. <laughs> so like it helps to have something that's got a little bit heavier of the narcotic effect versus something that's going to like light my fucking fire. So yeah, we got away from the hazes because they don't wash and the tangies because they don't wash. Not only did we, you know, stick away from them for that purpose, but I kind of got over the flavor too. I found that like a lot of the tangy crosses are just like really dominant and like you've got to like clean your rig if you want to smoke out of it and not taste tangy after you dab it. And the same kind of goes with hazes and stuff like that. So aside from the fact they don't wash, I just don't really prefer them anymore. I really like the variations that we're getting on this. Like everybody calls it like dough or cookie or, you know, sweet pastry, you know, it's just like, expressed itself in so many forms across the crosses that we've grown that it's like kind of becoming like hard to talk about the differentiation. You kind of just have to smell these jars, you know, like some are a little bit sweeter, some are a little bit gassier, some have a little bit more of that dough effect, you know, some, I don't know, like this new one that we're growing, it's a cereal milk times fish scale. So that's like a cookies and compound collab. It's, it's wild, dude. Like the plant, it, it's impressive in the structure, but it's certainly not the frostiest plant that I've ever seen. But like the terpene, I'm just like, please God, let this thing wash. Cause like, it'd totally be worth it to keep some of these around. I'm impressed by a lot of the new directions and like new ways that cannabis is expressing itself through like very like specific efforts by these breeders. So it's cool. Like we were chatting about earlier you know, it's, it's a wild time right now. And like the things that are available to the common person surrounding cannabis, like previously, like the idea of like getting a cut, like is like, you're fucking out of your mind. And this is before I was even trying to, but um, like now with the availability of like dispensaries and nurseries and seed banks that are online that you can order from, have the shit delivered right to your house. And like, grow equipment is pretty cheap. Like pretty much anybody who is, you know, so inclined can grow some, some pretty damn good weed um, if they just start with the right genetics. So, you know, it's a cool time to be a part of it. A cool time to see all the, the variation. And like, the, like I said, the ways that it's expressing itself. Yeah. And you brought up compound a few times, including that cookies cross. And it's not typically genetics that you hear that are like washers. Have you been finding stuff within that gear that's been working? No, for the most part, the apples and bananas was like some of the most fire or sorry, the gastro pop was some of the most fire weed that we've grown. Like our number nine, I think it was, was like this beautiful flower and like looked like a little sparse, like up until week six and then just like chunked up on these like nice tall stalks. But it was like, like I said, they like the greasiest pot. And if you're growing for flour, like that's fucking great. Like that turf is going to just like take over and the flavor is going to last through the flour. So like out of, I think it was 11 different females that we flowered, we only had one that was like even maybe this will wash. And that's the one I was talking about earlier. Our number eight has like a still a pretty nice terp in comparison to like most strains. <laughs> like it certainly isn't as loud as the number nine that, like I said, would have been a great BHO option or a flower option, but it still has like a really nice, like kind of cookie background. And then, then a hint of that apples and bananas, which is like pretty profound in a lot of the crosses right now. We're growing one of their crosses in veg it's apples and bananas times. Can't remember what the cross is, but it's called pink certs. Either way, I can smell some of that same terp inside the cross. So that thing really carried through in our number eight. Yeah, their gear and some of the cookies gear, even sea junkie, like none of the stuff really washes well. And like I said, if you're after just grams per square foot, like you'd toss a lot of these. But for us, 
it's always just been about our desire to have like the craziest flavors available for ourselves. So like that keeping as our priority, we're willing to, to accept, like I said, keepers at a smaller percentage. And that's why exploring a lot of this gear is worthwhile. Cause I mean, shit, that gastro prop surprised me. I think it finished around five and grows great on flour and has that turp I was just talking about. And that's one seed out of 11 that was like that. So granted we're not hunting, hunting hundreds of seeds. And if you got room for that, then fuck yeah, hunt the gear. And if you're looking for a washer, then you'll find something for sure. But one out of 11, I mean, that's not a good number as far as <laughs> do I have a good shot of finding something. But this is something I've actually spoken to other people about is it's interesting that maybe now it's still not a good number, but like five to 10 years ago, it probably would have been way worse odds, for example, of finding a washer in a pack of seats if there were packs of seats. Yeah, I definitely agree that like probably the resin has had some serious jumps in like structure and certainly like volume, like, right? Like for the cannabis plant to test at what it's testing at on the flower proportion, it's a combination of a denser pack of trichomes and then more cannabinoids and terpenes per trichome head. So like, you know, that's been like the progression over recent years that has definitely shined. And, and, you know, there are some breeders that are breeding for washability. So like you can go find, you know, like I said, Bloom has got a whole bunch of uh, washers that we've stumbled across. And um, I think there's a, a few other companies that you can find out there that are like, we're breeding based on resin gland. I think Schwale on Instagram, S H W A L E. I think they've got some pretty sick pictures and explanations of like some of the lineage that they've been working with and the different variation in trichome structure. And they've been breeding for the size of these glands and, and washers and stuff. So yeah, you're absolutely right. In the recent years, the availability to like the common person has certainly broadened and, and become very much more than what it was. Yeah, shout out to, like you said, I, I think it's pronounced strongly as well. But uh, yeah, the, the weak neck and like you said, lots of cool imagery and have their, their own genetics that they're doing their thing with. So it's cool to see and it's cool that you're hunting through all these packs and finding stuff and stuff that maybe wouldn't you wouldn't expect to find stuff in, which I'm sure is kind of part of the, the thrill. But you brought them up earlier and shout out to Sam. Uh, of Mile High Melts, a really nice guy, like we were talking about earlier. He was on kind of early on in the show, which is kind of weird now to think about this mm -hmm. much time having gone by. But you also told me in private that it takes finding, in essence, almost like the right team or partner to work with in regards to like the processor, because you're strictly a cultivator as of now, but you're working exclusively with Mile High Melts at this point. And you told me that in part, what really has fostered this relationship is that they're willing to take on, in essence, kind of like these risks as well of washing these one percenters, sub one percenters to find the stuff that's working, just like you're willing to do the growing part of it. Yeah. I mean, shout out Sam and uh, Taylor. It's, you know, when we first started our journey on cannabis, <laughs> like committed or at least I was working with Kyle and uh, he was doing BHO extraction. 
that was when I, you know, started my thing in, in Denver. And after we transitioned to kind of like looking for other partners, you know, that's when extract started to progress. Kyle was making shatter and now there was like sauce and, you know, we wanted to find somebody who could do diamonds and like, you know, all that stuff. And Kyle was, you know, still making a fire shatter product, but hadn't, you know, taken that step yet. So when we reached out to the market, it was nice because we had some exposure on IG. So it was like people were willing to work with us. It was still a big challenge because it's not just about like the product and at the end of the day, it's, it's working relationship. And like, can you handle the way this person does their shit? Because if it's going to be like a long-term relationship, clearly you're going to be doing a lot of, you know, shared time kind of activities. So either way, you know, meeting Sam, we had met him like through like, you know, the cannabis scene, you know, it was pretty cool. Like in Denver, maybe five, six years ago, a lot of people were just kind of like finally meeting each other that had maybe chatted on Instagram or whatever. And um, we didn't immediately start working together. Um, We had some like times that I wanted to really explore, like who was going to provide the best product, but couple that with a working relationship. So we went through a number of different options, let me say. And um, Sam just turned out to be the right one. It, it was just like the right fit. And how much would you say like the role of something like trust place also? in uh, it's, the huge, it, it's totally huge. I mean, I've been lucky where, you know, my, my standards were set high, like with Kyle, like we were homies before anything. And like, I never had to question, but there were a lot of people that were like, dude, I think this extractor's fucking me. Like, I heard that like somebody got these jars and like, it doesn't seem right. Like the numbers aren't at, you know, like those kind of stories are all over the place. So like trust is fucking huge, especially when it's like something that you like love and you're proud of. And like, you know, like it's what you want to share. <laughs> like I hate it, hate to put it like that, but yeah, it's like, it's trust is, is a big deal. Obviously that's like right at the top of like relationship priorities, like, you know, as like a overhead thing, like everybody that, I still mess with in my life. I've got to be able to like trust, right? Like, and that, that goes for everybody. But um, yeah, with, with the processing relationship, like it was awesome that, you know, they were willing to, like you said earlier, go through like the fails with us. We definitely have had plenty of like, damn, this one bombed. That sucks. The turp was all there. The flower number was all there, but I don't know. I don't think we're going to keep it around. Like just because this or whatever it was, it's too similar to this. Like I just, they've been there through like the tough spots. Yeah. It's it's really um, been a pleasure. And uh, we've had like a really seamless relationship for a number of years now. I'm curious if the relationship has changed in the sense of like, at the beginning, were they providing you more data than they are now or? Well, I was always, you know, like I said, I'm an accountant. By, by trade. So like I was always really detailed in tracking of data for the phenos that we were hunting. Like it was really nice when we first started hunting to look back on like, okay, this one has consistently done above this number. This one has varied between this and this. Like it was just really cool to like have some meaningful data in front of us and like, damn, what did that one wash at that one time? What's the best it's ever done? You know, okay, how many, you know, like it's just, it's, it's a lot, or I should say it's like definitely was part of the process heavy upfront. Um, now it's just kind of like if the turp is there and it washes, all right, like we're hitting our flower numbers on pretty much everything we put in the room. So, you know, it's just the, the data component, I guess 
to answer your question, it was just like for us working together and them being able to provide the data that I wanted. They were excited to hear about the new stuff I was washing. They were willing to go through the challenge. Their product was superior. And I just, I like them as people. <laughs> I mean, they're fun. We hang out not often because we live, you know, on the Western side of the state, we're not in Denver, but you know, we travel, we snowboard, that kind of shit together. So it's, it's cool, man. It's been a blessing. Yeah, that is cool. I'm curious how much say you have in how they process the material, for example, like into specific types of rosin as the cultivator. Oh, I mean, how they do their thing. I have zero say like they're, (laughs) they are the professionals far as the craft goes and uh you know i very much value their abilities and the products and consistencies they're able to produce as far as like you know i I don't really know that there are that many options right now like you know personally like i smoke hash rosin so like i want hash rosin so like we get hash rosin like it's it's pretty easy that way and like i said earlier uh you know they're willing to you know, wash groups of phenos together if it's during a hunt separately and all that. So we can get specific data back just to see exact percentages, what went in, what came out. Really simple to calculate that shit, but it's important to do it when we find the ones that we want to keep. You know, it it helps on our end that they're willing to put in the work and the time to, you know, get us there, I guess. So do you know, for example, like what microns go into the hash rosin? Because obviously the people... Yeah, I mean, we we definitely like at times, you know, the grape cream cake, for example, was one of them. It was just like predominantly like 90 to 120. So there was a number of times where it was like, hey, I definitely want some premium rosin. And we segregated like the first wash, 90 to 120, whatever it is, 70 to 120 sometimes if it's like the right, you know, texture. Like I'm not too up on that. Like it's been really nice. Like Sam has been in the industry in one form or another for like way longer than I have and way more of an, of a portion of his life. He's a bit younger than I am too. So like his knowledge of cannabis is just like really up there and especially of the extraction process. So as far as like how they want to produce and and the the product that's going to come down at the end of the day, like that's all on them to tell me, I just, I'm like, Hey, (laughs) hash rosin with this, please. (laughs) And awesome. That's how it works. Okay, cool. Yeah. Fair, man. Yeah. It's always interesting to me to see how that relationship works, but not only like overall, but these kind of details where they're people are leaving it up to the processor in that case, or, you know, he definitely looks to us for input because of, you know, he's not around to see the live plant. He wants to know before he throws something in ice and water, what terps are going to be prevalent. If like we talked about earlier, if stuff is greasy, what not to wash with other stuff. So like, yeah, he definitely looks to us to kind of group everything on our best guess, but it's through, you know, the really, like I said, over, over time, figuring it out together, like him being able to provide detailed enough feedback and us being able to be like, okay, here's the predominant pattern that's going on with, with at least this or whatever we're trying to figure out. In regards to like wash percentages, I know we talked about earlier how this isn't necessarily the end all be all sign of if a genetic is suited for washing or not, but what's the highest range you've seen since you ran so much stuff? Our grape cream cake finished out a couple times north of six. 
um, six, three, we uh, hit with a, a chem cut that we had for a long time. It was like something floating around Denver. It definitely wasn't any of the normal ones. People were just calling it chem, but my neighbor hooked me up and it turned out to be a washer like crazy. Yeah. North of, north of six was some of the best we ever did. And some people have told me, you know, finish numbers higher than that, which is mind blowing to me. Is hash rosin your preferred smoke now, basically? Yeah, we definitely just dab hash rosin. I don't know what it is, like BH show, call it the whatever. I can't think of the word, but like the terps are so strong in a lot of them. Like the really wet dabs just like really fuck me up. And hash rosin, it kind of gives me like a rough, like <clears throat> clear, but like I'm not like gasping for fucking breath and it's not like so overwhelming. It's, and I've always been like, you know, when we came on to hash rosin, it was because it finally came around to tasting at least comparable to BHO. Like to me, hash was always like the full melt version where it was like, you know, there's certainly like a hashy, you know, that like kind of burnt, earthy, whatever you want to call it. It's not a, a refined extract. And when I smoked hash rosin, by Jared, uh, when he was still at proper extracts, it was some of the same. It was like Crockett's seed. I can't remember what it was like a straw or something. Anyway, when I tried the product, it was just like, holy shit, the flavor is all there and it's solventless. Like I don't like volatile chemicals if I don't have to fucking be around them or participate in that process. So I always had like, yeah, if there's a better flavor, I'm going in that direction. And that's why I started turning all of our product into BHO when we first did, because it's like, holy shit, like shattered tastes like the bag smells. You know what I mean? Like that was, that was a real big, or a real big draw to me to make that switch over to predominantly concentrates. Um, we still smoke, you know, flour, but it's a few times a week. Whereas like, yeah, hash rosin is definitely the preferred method now, you know, just the, the clean process of the extraction and uh, the flavor is all there. And um, that's my choice. What was the first time you saw a cannabis concentrate? Like I said earlier I, with uh, Justin Cron on Instagram, I think that was like the first shatter slab I ever saw. And I was just like immediately like, holy shit, like that's THC. Like I've got to get that. So like somehow I can't remember how it was, but I met a couple of people in Dallas and they were all kind of on the same vibe. And Kyle, you know, he did his thing and it was awesome to see that it was available when it was. And yeah, we were just like blown away. And that was, I don't know, it was probably 2012, I think for me, maybe 2011 at the end or something like that. But, you know, as soon as I did, it was just like, that's how I want to consume cannabis for sure. Yeah, it's funny. I think it was literally right around either 2011 or 12 that I first took a hit of oil that was packed in like a bowl, but I didn't know at the time. Yeah. Super. I, I think, uh, yeah, I had like, um, I'm trying to remember. It was like a rooster apparatus. I can't remember what, what the dude's name was, but it was like, uh, this glass, right? Like anyway, everybody was in the way it like smoked or whatever. And my, my brother lived in Colorado. I was in uh, Dallas and we got some uh, earwax hash is what they called it. And I'm pretty sure it was a BHO extraction. And I put it on top of flour and I was just like, holy fucking shit. Like this is unbelievable. I'm pretty sure I was getting paranoid as fuck, <laughs> but yeah, it was a while. And then when it turned to only dabbing, you know, that's when it was like red hot nails and titanium and no, no carb caps. And thank God for the D nail down in, in Dallas 
we were dabbing on that, but even that with, without the cap was like, you know, a thousand degrees and it was like, Oh, you left some on the nail. Like what the fuck, you know, kind of thing. So yeah, we've come a long way. It's really nice uh, to consume cannabis in, I guess today's, you know, market with so many different options back in the day. It was like, I hope there's some good shit at homie's house today. Cause that's what we're smoking, you know? So <laughs> what's your take on the high levels of terpenes in concentrates now? Uh, well, we're definitely like, you know, the guinea pigs of this whole, you know, daily cannabis concentrate consumption group caustic, I think is the word that somebody used one time. And it was a person, um, it was like an Indo expo or something like that. And somebody was attending and they were from a background of like botanicals and like lavender extracts and all that kind of shit. And someone was talking to them about dabbing and they were just like blown away at the like milligrams that were being consumed of these like heavily concentrated oils in the form of vapor. And they're like, y'all are fucking crazy. <laughs> you know, like now it's like, nah, dude, that shit isn't like wet, wet. I don't want any of it, but yeah, believe it. Terpenes are a solvent, dude. Like they'll fucking clean shit. Like, you know, limonene, you know, like that's in cleaners for a reason. And when you vaporize that stuff and consume it, Often, certainly it's got to have an effect. I mean, I'm certainly not a scientist, but I can tell you that a raspy and clear in my throat is definitely a product of <laughs> concentrate consumption. Well, speaking of, uh, maybe this is a good time for a small break. <laughs> you know? Word, yeah. All right, cool. I'd like to take another moment to thank all the people that make up our community on Patreon for allowing us to continue to produce episodes, including episode 42 with Marshall of Weed, Pray, Love, and to give a special shout out to some of our top contributors, including Jung Lee Gross, Organitech in Michigan, Garland in DC, Gastown Fire and their Green Cedar Retreat in Tofino, Canada, Sandman Hashstar, the crew at Heritage Hashco Mendocino, Jonah in Illinois, David at Rosin Evolution, Milwaukee Jeff, my dude the Real Cannabis Chris, Pesci 44 in Connecticut, Kevin of Lifted Indina, Mids Adjacent in Arizona, The Chile Relleno Burrito, Nick the Intern, Macro Melts in SoCal, and the homie Big C. I appreciate every single one of you. Now back to the episode. All right, cool. So let's talk about cultivating a little bit. We've talked about the automation earlier. You told us a little bit about kind of how your cultivation career started in that little closet in Boulder, which, by the way, was that the one that was in your like 18 or 20 year challenge that had the yeah. foil on the wall? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That's funny. Yep, that's exactly it. So talk about where you're at now with cultivation. Uh, I saw recently, I think you've made a change in what you're feeding your plants. So why don't we start there? Yeah, dude, it's, it's been fun trying out new things, you know, like it's so foreign when you first start, you know, I didn't come from like a horticultural background or anything like that. So like learning how plants want to grow and like being identified, being able to identify like different traits or, you know, patterns in, in these different crosses, it's all been a refined process. You know what I mean? So like over time, and where we've gotten to now, like when you mentioned, you know, new nutrient lines, it's like 
we've kind of have this like baseline established in our head of like what a room should be. And like, now I can kind of play with variables and be like, okay, well, it looks like we're kind of hitting the same thing or uh, this was a little different this time or, you know, whatever the case is. So with all of like the hype, obviously like, you know, most of the call it media <laughs> that I take in is around in the, the cannabis world. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people that are really crushing and doing some amazing things on Instagram. And, you know, like, when a lot of people have success with something, you're naturally just kind of like, Hey, I kind of want to try that, you know, whether that's the power of marketing or whatever it is, you know, I respect a grower. And then when they do something and the proof is kind of in the pudding, you know, like when you see the picture and the plant finished healthy and it looks like fire, like maybe I didn't get a chance to like smoke it or try it or taste it, smell it, all that stuff. But it's like, at least worth looking at like, damn, that looks like fire. So for us, you know, we grew with canna for the entire time that we were hand feeding and then the start of our you know irrigation and and automation um, on that side we had like this really like amazing finished product with this like really great terpene content and like i love the way that the flower grew but there's like a, a real challenge when you use recipes that have organics or you know not a fully synthetic um, recipe in irrigation lines and stuff clogs up and emitters you know stop dripping and you know there's film on the inside of things and we we had a number of issues to where it was like okay all these other people are having this great success with some of the new lines like athena um, you know, that's the one that we've, we've tried now, both the pro and the blended, like shout out to Ryan for plugging us and pushing us to make the, the change. But when you have that baseline and then you're able to try these other products and avert the issue of the films and the clogs and all that kind of shit, um, and having to be out there basically to make sure your plants are getting watered and that nothing is clogged it starts to like, I guess, well, maybe I'll, I'll try that. So once we ran Athena a couple of times and we saw that, I mean, I hate to put it bluntly, but like for a fraction of the price, you can get a still a really impressive flower and plenty of terpenes on there. Like we did have, you know, maybe like a shift in some of the, like the papaya melons that we've grown so many times, we actually got more hash on a pretty significant number, you know, 1.5 to two. It's not like all of a sudden it was a fucking winner, but that's 33% on the upside. But the hash was a, a much drier finish. And even though like you can still smell it and all that, like it's really in the quality and the consistency of that hash that it speaks volume. So um, that was on the pro line. We're trying the blended line right now, like up next, I think we're going to try uh, drip hydro. And, you know, I said, we probably wouldn't do it, but we might even try canna go back and use, you know, some of the drip clean products and, you know, really try to be diligent with cleaning schedules on the lines. But like it added such a headache using that line with, you know, like with the agrotech, it mixes up a batch and it feeds until that batch is empty. Well, the the system knows that the batch is empty by this like liquid sensor that's in the base of this thing. It's like a liquid light sensor, I think. And when the water level drops below that, it knows that it's dry. Well, with this can of recipe and we were using Elite 91 and Mammoth and like all these products that are fantastic. And if I go back to hand watering in a tent ever, I'll definitely use them. But for the irrigation system and that light sensor specifically, the film that was building up on that light sensor was causing the system to think that the tank still had water in it. So I would come out after a feeding and like the pump had been running dry for like an hour and a half or two hours. So 
if you're going to commit to irrigation, it's hard not to go fully synthetic. And like when I think back to our problems <laughs> that we had in our current culture buckets, it was because of my like lack of knowledge over about that. And I'm sure if we had a fully synthetic recipe, but I was insistent on using my special ingredients that, you know, we could have avoided some issues that we ended up having with roots and cleaning the buckets out and having to change water out of tanks unexpectedly and all, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, irrigation is a beast in itself. It's not just really straightforward. And when you're using organic and natural products, you do have residues and all that kind of shit you got to worry about. So once we made the jump from hand watering and, you know, our numbers went way up from in flowering and our time commitment and physical commitment to that watering had diminished so much. It was like, we're not going to go back at least right now. Like I said, if I ever grow in a tent, I'm certainly using can again, but it's hard to do on a large scale um, and not encounter those kind of problems and those issues. We were changing emitters halfway through flower and, you know, the whole time as, as it's salting up, you know, that pressure is changing and plants aren't getting the same amount of water. So like with Athena, like that shit just runs clean, clean, clean. It's crazy. You know, no buildup whatsoever on this thing. It's, and it's like a three part and it's super cheap and the weed is still pretty fucking good and the hash is still pretty good. So, you know, we're still R and D in, um, but it's, uh, it's cool to be able to jump from these different components and see variation and be able to recognize, you know, that change and, um, you know, really try to dial your program in just to, you know, maximize like all of the areas that are right for you, like time commitment and the production levels and the timing and what the end product as far as concentrate is going to look like, like, you know, the strain selection and all that. It just goes into like a really specific personal kind of formula. And um, the latest tweak that we've been playing with is, like I said, the nutrient lines. You mentioned a shift in terpenes from using one line to another, I guess maybe the organic line to the more or completely synthetic line. Do you feel like you lost terpenes or has it just changed? Well, like for us, you know, like this is, this is just personal experience and like some pretty raw data numbers. Um, we don't test final product or anything like that. So it's not like I can tell you the exact terpene content in the concentrate and the flower both times. And even just two times compare it, compare it is not like a really good trial. Like you really want to have a whole bunch of different comparatives, but for us, it was four plants of the same strain under the same light in the same room back-to-back rounds and the only change was the feeding skit was the the nutrient input and it was from canna and our elite nutrients and mammoth combination in the first round to athena pro in the second one and we would have it would be like a comparable what i would call like an immaterial difference on the flower weight both still tremendous and there was even more hash with the athena but Going into the jar with my dabber, it's noticeably drier. Now I can smell it and who knows, maybe it's like better for me that I'm not smoking so much of the terpenes, you know, like we were talking about earlier, we don't know what the effect of smoking these concentrated levels of uh, terpene extracts are. So like, who knows, but like for my eyes and the way I like to work with a dabber in a jar of hash, I want a wetter product, something that's not going to like not crumble because by no means is it crumbly, but it's certainly drier. It like breaks apart a lot easier and it's not like a peanut butter that I'm running through my dab or it's definitely coming off in chunks. 
do you feel now that after seeing so many types of resin, whether it's BHO or hash rosin, that there's genetics or resin that are just naturally quote unquote drier than others? Yeah, definitely. Even among seeds in a pack, you can have really different expressions of resin quality and then certainly across strains. So like you really have this like plant by plant individual characteristic of how the resin gland wants to express itself and how much call it volume of cannabinoids and terpenes are in the gland, right? Like if you have, excuse me, like a really bulbous head, this is one thing when we first started using silica in our recipe, we had a really big change in a lot of the numbers that were coming down for strains that we had been running for a long time. And, you know, like I said, this is all kind of bro science. I don't have like scientist back data or anything like that. But from our experience, I found that like an overusage of silica on some of the strains um, was causing like an extra thick resin gland, right? It was like less resin per gland. So like when you go to squeeze that out, it's, there's less resin in there and it's just a drier hash in nature or by nature. So even some of like the really slick strains were almost like firming up to where their results weren't still great, but they might've been a little bit better. Like the resin gland was like a little bit stronger. So like certainly strain specific, but also, you know, what you're feeding the plant, you know, you see the outcome in the hash, certainly like, so we're like aware of a lot of these factors now, and it certainly goes into like how we're hunting and how we're looking at strains. So I've seen you post about EC levels regarding your nutrient lines, what are they and what are their function? Well, EC is like electro something conductivity, but it measures like, I believe like the mineral content in the water, you know, how many particles are there that are available. Ionic charges and all that stuff kind of goes over my head, but it's right in that neighborhood. Look it up if you're interested in it, but really it's just like in layman's terms, like how much nutrients am I feeding the plant? And in my old recipe, you know, we would work our way up through veg. Maybe veg was like 1300, 1400. And by midweek five, sorry, this, that was PPMs. EC, it was probably around like one, three or one, four. I don't know what the exact conversion is, but I know that at our peak, we were hitting like 2.1 and that was probably like week four of flower, but veg and all that stuff, it was like 1.8 in, uh, you know, mid one, something like that. Um, we were doing PPMs back then. Now everything is EC and that's like the standard everybody wants to, wants to go to. It's, you know, from like the greenhouses and, and ag and like all, all of that stuff. So either way, the point is with Athena, when you think about big ag in general and like the algae blooms that are occurring in the Gulf of Mexico and on the Florida coast, like that's because of the amount of fertilizers that we as a society and a nation are consuming, using, putting in the groundwater and it's running out to the ocean. So like concentrating these minerals in this forms and pouring it away is like, call it an environmental concern. For us, I've definitely noticed and like you know, this is just my own experience. I'm just one person. Just, like I keep throwing in the caveat, this is not science back data, but man, there is definitely a way larger salt buildup at the base of our pots that we're feeding um, our mothers, you know, mothers we keep in one gallons for a long time. And in our previous mix up, you know, we never had the level of salts that are building up around the base of these pots. So I commend, you know, the people that are 
pushing technology that's like recirculating runoff and like recapturing these things and like zero waste facilities. Like, man, that is amazing. But for us, at least these small things that I'm noticing, you know, it goes all into the full consideration of like what our program is going to look like and how we want to do it for all the reasons that I mentioned before. But yeah, specifically with Athena, it's, it's definitely something we've noticed as far as the higher EC translating to like, there's more salt all over the place as far as the bottom of the container and the inside of the containers when we pull the plants out. Yeah. So after we've seen this, you know, higher level of EC and all the salt buildup that I mentioned, like we definitely run a longer flush. It's certainly like three weeks now and I'm monitoring runoff and like making sure it's at acceptable levels. And, you know, we're, the nice thing is we're in five gallon plastic pots where previously it was like seven gallon fabrics and those seven gallon fabrics took forever to fully flush out, but with a lesser volume of medium and then more frequent applications of water, we're able to achieve the, you know, the runoff levels that we're okay with before we bring the plants down. For someone who's not familiar with the flush, can you just give us a small breakdown of what that purpose is? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I think everybody's familiar with the whole white ash thing, and I'm sure that's still controversial and somebody's going to, you know, have a problem with the way that I'm looking at it. But when I like to look at burnt flour, I want to see like a nice white ash and a smooth cherry that like doesn't fall off and crumble and break away in clumps and all that stuff. And um, when it's black, it means there's something like in that leaf matter that isn't burning away. And typically that's represented by the nutrients the plant has been uptaking through its life that it hasn't either used and it's still storing in its leaves or could be chlorophyll. What, you know, there's a number of things that throughout the harvest dry and cure can lead to a good ash, but certainly nutrients is an indicator. And when you harvest a plant while the runoff or the levels of those nutrients are still above a certain level, you're going to experience a different burn now. The crazy thing with hash, I'm not sure, and I still have yet to hear any science claim one way or another, but when I harvest the trichome head and I squeeze out the resin on the inside, where are those nutrients? Because certainly on the inside of the gland, you're just talking about cannabinoids and uh, terpenes. So as a hash farmer, do I really need to flush? Well, the answer is yes for me because we like to keep personal flour. And that's the reason that we've always gone for nine weeks. I feel most flour is complete by then. A lot of people and hash farmers are harvesting early to get more rotations in. And there's peak resin times, you know, as far as a quality of product and a color and all that kind of stuff. Um, but for me, it's always been about like the finished flour and then that's what the extract is going to be for us. I like that heavy narcotic effect. And, you know, the longer you let stuff run, typically the more, call it degradation is going to occur and the CBN effect and all that kind of stuff. So hopefully I'm right when I say all that. And it's not just my experience. So you talked about your moms a little earlier being in one gallon pots. And I've seen through your feed that your root game is really strong. I mean, it's like these crazy, crazy root systems in these kind of small pots. So going back to what you said, I believe earlier of when you're searching through a strain, you're taking a couple cuts of that while it's in flowering. Can you tell us, can you tell us about kind of how that process works for you in the pheno hunting? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, we're limited by space and plant count foremost. So it's like, how can we keep backups around and have them not take up too much space well it's definitely one gallons you know we can't keep 
moms or like, you know, phenos that we're hunting in anything bigger than that, or it really starts to become like a space cramp for us. You know, a lot of people re-veg plants and right now, actually the hunt that we're going through, there's one that didn't root when we took copy cuts. I'm going to try to re-veg it. It's pretty fireweed and it's worth a shot. So um, we're going to see how that goes. But at least up until now for us, every single plant that we flower out as a seed, we will keep cuts of. A lot of people will grow a seed until the point they can take cuts off of it and then send that through. But that doesn't work for our space and our timing. So we take copies right before a group gets flowered out and that clone will stick around kind of on the sidelines and most of them stay in solo cups. Some of them make it to one gallons, but for the entire time that the plant, the clone was taken from flowers and we get the hash back. We want to know what the finished numbers were all around from flower weight, the hash return, and then what the quality of hash looks like and, you know, color and texture and flavor and how loud it is and all that kind of shit. So until we have those results from that seed that gets harvested and processed, the copy sits on the sideline and it takes, you know, daily feeding, sometimes a couple times a day um, when the plants start getting a little bigger. But really that is the key to the root zone. And um, we're not experts. There's a, a lot of people that do it well. We've definitely hit some plants out of the park and timed it right, but it's hard to do when you're not on automation, when you're doing a lot of different strains super consistently. When you're working with like groups of cuts and stuff like that, it's a lot easier, but seeds, some can be a little bit more finicky. They want to grow different. So when you're trying to feed a whole room at the same time, you know, the drybacks are going to be like the critical component. So if a plant is not all the way dry and the root is still a little bit wet, it doesn't need to be watered. Whereas if, if it goes over dry and you miss that window, you start to have the fibers at the end of the roots die off. And, um, you know, that, that part of the root zone wants to deaden out. Now, even with like pretty shitty roots, if you up pot a plant and do the dry downs appropriately, you'll have a shot at bringing back that white healthy system. But, you know, I keep saying it like dry downs, dry downs. It's that is really the most critical. Like certainly there are products that are going to increase your likelihood of success. You know, we just planted our garden veggies and holy shit, the starts that we got from the local greenhouse had like great white root systems. And it really is just about not oversaturating or over drying the root zone once it gets going. That is like the key to success with, you know, and it's really like plant health starts in the roots, you know, like the best plants are going to be the ones that have those thick uh, webs of of thick white roots. And it all starts with like healthy moms, healthy clones. And if you dry, if you manage the dry backs appropriately all through its life, you definitely did what you could as far as setting the plant up to its, you know, express its full potential. This is kind of like a side note, but what is your take on taking clones since again you're doing it quite often you know for us it's pretty basic we've had a recipe that's worked for a little while for us we try to take like the best tops off the moms obviously like if i've got like an extra like let's say i need four plants to go through flower of this strain and i've got five cuts that rooted the best one is going to be the mom that we keep and I'll flower out the other four. So like, I'll always set myself up first with like the best chance to take a cut off of a healthy mom. And that goes back to managing the drybacks. But once we identify those cuts off those moms, then, you know, it's pretty basic. We're using um, some silica right now, still from elite 91. 
their silicic acid. Uh, we're also using good old Clonex. And then I add some CalMag as well from uh, Elite 91. And then into the slurry, I'll put some of Elite 91's Myco Jordan um, and let those cubes soak in that. And then we'll plug all of the uh, cuts into that. And we won't give them the Myco every time, just that first time it's enough to inoculate that, that cube. And uh, we'll refeed them the rest of the mixture. Usually everything is poking out by like day eight, day nine. I start to get worried if stuff isn't poking, but like as early as day seven, um, we'll see it start. And then certainly by like day 10, day 11, most of them are ready to go into a solo cup. Sometimes I'll let them run a little bit longer if there are some stragglers, but yeah, if your process isn't producing like healthy roots under 14 days, it's probably time to rethink it. And there's a million ways to do it, dude. I mean, a million ways, like I said, like the, I guess the cubes that we're using, that's been a more recent change for us. We used to just do like groups of the Grodan blocks that like come in paper, like strips that are attached to each other by paper and you can like break them off because I would write on the side of them. Um, and then we would just stand those on a gate inside the dome. But I prefer to get those inserts where you can like keep a clone in position inside like the dome and not have paper around the outside. I find it just like helps to manage the drybacks a little bit better. The paper kind of gets gross and soggy anyway, so I don't like to keep it in there. And then having them all spaced out and like on a grid system, they all tend to like just do a little bit better. And it also holds up like the base of that cube away from the bottom of the tray. So you're not having roots get smashed when it starts to poke out of the cube. Yeah, I think I saw actually that those spacers on your feed. Uh, yeah, we, we used to roll with those. Those were just light covers you know you could get them at home depot like the ceiling lights like uh fluorescent bulbs it was like those long like four by whatever covers for lights and we would just break them into segments and put them in the bottom of the trays but these ones it's it's like a 50 cube insert and we space them out every other one typically so it's like 25 cuts per dome and uh it seems to work well so let's talk about how all this translates up to the top of the plant and something you brought up earlier which was bud structure, which is something I haven't really dived into like a lot with someone because typically it's just like either they're tight nugs or they're not. But you again, you've gone through so much variety. What would you say are some almost like cornerstone type bud structures, if you could call them that? I don't know. I mean, once wedding cake dropped, I realized how easy it was to maintain those kind of plants. There's like zero trim to do. They grow in these like tall branchy structures where it's like these monster buds that just kind of like line the stalks going up, but they don't get too big. Like when a plant starts to have like these football sized buds, like the interior of that bud is not ideal for me. It's, you know, it looks like cabbage, like to me when you break it up, it's like this like extra bright, green, almost like white color, just because of like how dense and big it is. There's not a lot of light penetration. And the reality is like, you've seen finished pot and unfinished pot and the denser that canopy is the denser, or I guess the bigger the buds are with the density playing a factor, like, and the less, less light that's making it into the inside, like that's going to really deter me from wanting to grow it. But like as far as cornerstone structure, like I love the wedding cake structure. I want to see those like big bulbous buds going up the side. But you know, when something cold is up, 
I, I love that too. Like, oh my God, like a couple feet tall of buds is badass. As long as, like I said, it doesn't have such a big diameter that light isn't able to penetrate towards that center. So in regards to, for example, the hash, since now you're doing solventless only, have you seen any correlation in certain types of bud structures and like, for example, the return on the numbers? Well, you know, I mean, just in like general plant characteristics, like certainly some strains are going to want to grow squat and stay a little bit shorter and not reach like the same kind of heights you will on, on some other crosses. And that's going to play an effect just on how much flower weight you're producing, but it could be coated in trichomes where some of the larger plants have less of a density. So about numbers, you know, and, and that being your outcome, certainly smaller structure plants are going to affect it by having like less you know, flower material to wash, but that doesn't mean it can't be a larger return coming off a smaller plant and still obviously have a terp that you're looking for. So this is kind of a random point, but uh, going back to your wife helping out in the garden, I saw a post that was pretty intriguing in the sense that she figured out something that was going on with your water. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, we had just moved from Denver to the country and our water source changed. And in the city, you tend to have more, you know, minerals and stuff. Your PPMs and EC, whatever, is a lot higher on your tap water versus where we're at. The water is much more filtered. And uh, what I didn't realize is that by sending that super filtered water again through an RO filter, we were scraping out some of the micronutrients um, that cannabis needs uh, as far as to inhibit or I guess help its uptake of certain minerals, it needs other things. So the plant's showing a calcium deficiency and you want to correct it. You give more calcium, CalMag, your product of choice, whatever it is. And you don't realize that there's a lack of boron for uptake of the nutrients. So the plant has plenty of calcium inside its diet, but because you have filtered out the water and removed the micronutrient, it's unable to eat it. So it's kind of like drowning in this like extra rich solution of you know, the calcium when it can't even eat it or uptake it. So our first run out here, <laughs> I, I totally nuked a room and I thought I was going to lose our first round because of what we were doing to try to correct a deficiency that was being expressed, not because that mineral was deficient in the solution. So it was with her help. Yep. That she figured it out. That's when we started adding elite 91, we were using roots and uh, their calcium and magnesium. I think it has some of the boron in it. Either way, the changes that we made definitely translated into the plant. We weren't seeing the same deficiencies and credit to her because she was the one who figured it out. Let's talk about some of the genetics you've run and, You've mentioned some of kind of your standouts, at least based, you know, on your Instagram ice cream cake. I think there's maybe a couple of varieties of that that you guys found. And then obviously the grape cream cake we talked about. Another one that we haven't talked about at all is, I don't know if you run the Fabuloso or at least like the, I don't know if you call it OZ Kush. You mentioned yeah. it earlier. Um, sorry, go ahead. Oh, Arcade. Yeah. So I just was wondering, like, can you tell us about some of those genetics and some of the standouts that you found out over time? Yeah. For um, the that strain specifically, what we grew was the Fabuloso. So that's his Fabuloso times his keeper of OZ Kush. 
his OZ Kush was some of the only flour or literally was the only flour that I would buy when we were out of flour and living in Denver. It was just like this strong Skittles turf, but it had like that nice OG um, kind of gassiness to it as well. And I just like whatever, loved it for whatever reason. So we're buying that flour and I'm... I think I was like on a road trip or something. And my wife sends me pictures of this plate and there's like 25 or 30, like full term, big tiger, tiger stripe seeds next to some of the weed that she was breaking up out of some of this flower that we were smoking on from arcade. And, uh, you know, when you're paying good money for fire weed, you don't want to see a whole bunch of seeds in there. So I kind of let arcade know a little bit of jab, like, Hey buddy, what's going on here? And he was like, Oh shit, you're going to want to keep those. That was the room that I did that tester. You know, the OZ Kush got hit with my Fabuloso male. You should grow them out. So we did. We popped 10 of them, flowered out six. There were like a few that were like pretty squat and like, a, you know, a bunch of bushy arms to it. Some with decent structure, but then there was this like one that was like really nice structure and like one of the most beautiful flowers uh, on finish. It was like this awesome, like lavendery white glowing, like really like thick calyxes, not too much leaf, but not like totally bare bones, like the, the wedding cake or anything like that. It was just, you know, a real standout. And uh, yeah, we grew that one for a number of years. Eddie's been holding down his Fabuloso for a long time and has that cut. Uh, now, obviously we gave that one back to him. We don't grow it anymore personally, but he still got a hold of it. And it was one of my favorite turps for a long time. I still have a jar of hash that I'm like holding on to. A jar of rosin that we haven't finished off, and another, another jar that's uh, fab mixed with our papaya melons three that we let go. So like we've got it in a couple forms, still hanging around. But other than that, it's definitely um, one of the favorites of all time that we've had. And then the ice cream cake. Yeah, the ice cream cake. I mean, wedding cake when we moved out here was like just kind of blowing up and. Obviously, there were some people with that cut that were hitting like 6% returns on rosin. So when it kind of was a fad and I heard about those returns, I wanted to grow a bunch of the crosses. Sea Junkie released the Gelato 33 times wedding cake before it was called ice cream cake. That was somebody who grew it out, named it that. Um, and then that kind of took over. But the packs that we hunted had, or the one pack I should say, um, was Gelato 33 times wedding cake. And we had like, the two was like some of the best turps, but it was like hella greasy. Our number one was like some of the best structure I've ever seen on a plant. I definitely have pictures of that on my feed, but the, you know, it's been a number of years. So it's a, it's a while back uh, that we grew these, but yeah, like even the number like I said, it was the two, the one, and then the number five. It wasn't like the biggest plant, but the structure was amazing. The density of the trichomes was like so impressive on this like almost black background of a plant. And the terps were just like this nice, like creamy, cakey. Like it was the first time I'd smelled something in that arena. So yeah, we were, we were like really on that you know, ice cream cake and, and all those crosses like for a long time, as far as what we were hunting out, you know, I definitely set some, set some uh, standards and some bars that, you know, I was like, okay, well it has to grow like this. And obviously the whole time I'm referring to ice cream cake or, or uh, the grape cream cake, just cause it's like, it's a big plant, so easy to work and a lot of weight, you know, and good washers and great turps. I mean, it's like, what don't you like about it? 
So did the ones that you found, these ice cream cakes, did those go and be part, were they part of the grape cream cake as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we gave the ice cream cake one and five to Harry at Bloom, and uh, he messed with those for a little while. And he took his grape pie wedding crasher male pollen from a hunt that he did out of Sea Junkies gear. He hit that to our ice cream cake. Uh, the number one was the first round of grape cream cake F1. He l- released grape cream cake F1 again. And that was that same male of his, the grape pie winning crasher across to our ice cream cake number five. So definitely if you've, you know, hunted through grape cream cake at all that, you know, our cuts um, went into, you know, creation of that, which is pretty cool. And then we gave back the grape cream cake one. And I know he did an F2 with that. And I know he hunted out a male of it. And I'm pretty sure that's what he used in most of the crosses. But I think a lot of the femme stuff, like the grape cream cake times straw guava, that's probably our grape cream cake number one times his straw guava keeper female, obviously. Cool. Yeah, that's again, so cool how everybody's kind of all interconnected uh, in a weird way. Since you brought it up about the ice cream cake, what are your thoughts on naming a genetic that you find in a pack of seeds? You know, typically like a flavor is released with a name already. So like for me, changing the name of a cut or not representing it as like what it is, is kind of a no-no. Like I always love the combination of strain names, you know, like just the progression of, you know, how you take a portion of this name and a portion of that name and combine them. And that's what the cross is, you know, and that's just kind of how it went. Now adding yours to be like, Hey, this is the, the whatever cut you know, like the, the rabid hippie cut. I think uh, that was the Cushman's that everybody was passing <laughs> around or, you know, there's like, everybody's got some names for whatever cut or a garden that it came from or a person that found it or something like that, or even just a number. Like that's really what sticks. Like it's an easy naming convention. When you flower out 10 plants that you've got the one through 10 and you know, when it's got a number, it's like, oh, that's the ice cream cake number five. Okay, that might have come from this garden. But again, that's not necessarily because there's plenty of people that hunted at least one pack and they probably had their own ice cream cake number five and and all that. So naming, I don't try to do myself. Usually the pack is like, this is the cross. In the case of Sea Junkie, when he was selling stuff, it's like this cross to this is what's in the pack. You've got some freedom to call it what you want for sure. But I, I always try to make sure I'm representing the lineage, at least in some respect. Yeah, I think that's fair. Well, cool, man. I appreciate you hanging out with me this long. I know we've been hanging out a while, so I'll start winding it down. Cool. No, it's been fun. Yeah, man. I've had a lot of fun too. So I'm always interested in what's going on with people's lights. What kind of lights are you guys currently rocking in the garden? Um, We've been rocking Lux for a long time now. Uh, We're still using 1,000 watt double enders. HPS in uh, flower, and we're under the 645 LED in veg. And obviously, I'm assuming you're liking the results and the resin production from it? Yeah, before the LEDs in veg, we were on like 315 watts, the ceramic metal halides, and uh, it was a noticeable difference um, when we made the change. We don't even run the 645s at full. I think they're at 50 capacity, so it's almost like watt for watt, they're the same. Um, the footprints are a little different, obviously, but for us, like it was apparent that like the branching and like the thickness of the branching um, was different and we were getting a better structure on the plants and veg. Like I said, I haven't made the change in flower. Um, we're still rocking the HPSs and those produce like a really nice resin. I'm not the best person to ask about 
resin quality under flowering LEDs. Have you kept the HPSs for that reason? Because they're producing what you like? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like what I said at the beginning, you know, like when you find something that works for you, it's hard to want to change that. And aside from, you know, the monetary cost, like LEDs aren't cheap. And if the lights are working and then we're doing uh, what we want to do as far as a, a product quality level and benchmark, then yeah, I'm going to stick with it. You know, it doesn't mean that like we wouldn't throw up like two LEDs in, in the room with it or something, but I feel like with LEDs, you kind of got to make a commitment and do like a whole room just because of the different nature of like the heat exchange specifically, obviously like the radiant heat coming off of the double-ended, um, you know, the the high intensity lights is going to be way way higher i should say um than, than what's coming off for the leds so it just makes sense to segregate the environment if you're going to do a test run so we haven't gotten there i guess at the end of the day like I, i'm happy with our product we're not you know a group that's looking at you know running a thousand lights where power bill is all of a sudden like a huge fucking concern obviously like you're going to pay if you're running high intensity lights at quite a bit more than leds um, but on a small scale it's easier to to stomach, <laughs> I suppose, when you're happy with what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, just in general, the product offering that's coming out across the board with the Lux Athena, you know, conglomerate is is pretty impressive. And um, we haven't really been let down when we've tried any of their products. With running so many varieties, how do you control the canopy? It's a challenge. I mean, you know, we identify similar plant structure. Usually we're flowering enough of one strain. And if they have a similar structure through veg, we'll just group them on a tray together. But certainly like some stuff that wants to stretch, like we definitely always ran our layer cake with our grape cream cake or something that wanted to go real high versus like putting it on the same tray as an ice cream cake or something that's going to stay pretty squat. So, you know, just being aware of our strains, we're trying to put those on trays together. So it's easier to keep them the same height by, you know, putting the same amount of training into them. What do you aspire to do with your career in cannabis going forward? You know, I've always been excited about where this could take me as far as when I made the commitment to leave, you know, professional public accounting and the professional accounting background that I'm from. I recognize, you know, the, the wave and the trend of all things. And I've, I've got a lot of peers that have made the transition, um, you know, shout out rare, um, my homie Dave doing it real big in Oklahoma, um, you know, standing his extraction company up vertical and uh, doing his thing out there. I want to be associated with cannabis for the rest of my life. And for me, waiting for the right opportunity, looking for the right group has been the focus, at least in the short term of, you know, the progression on what's next. I definitely see the commercial and recreational or sorry, just the regulated market as where I want to be in the long term. And uh, the opportunity certainly is, is on the horizon. I've got a couple, like I said, friends that have made the transition and a couple groups that, you know, I'm aware of and um, projects that, that are happening and have yet to happen that, you know, the future's wide open, but certainly it's involved with cannabis and uh, I want to be around for the long haul. Can you scale up quality? Uh, I think so. You know, right now the technology exists where when you can grow 16, 20 plants a light, you've got a pretty low investment on a, on a time commitment, I should say, for 
raising a plant and getting it to where it needs to be before something can go wrong. You know, full automation and irrigation and like all this kind of stuff with the right team, you can definitely do it. You know, the uh, King's Garden that's out in California, I think their slogan is where quality meets quantity. And I haven't, you know, sampled any of their product. I haven't checked it out personally, but from what they're posting, their gardens look fire consistently and they've got a pretty large thing going on. I mean, there's uh, different levels of players in the game, certainly. And I think that the larger you go, the harder it is to achieve, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. So like maybe in the long run, like smaller column craft grows, if you will, there will be a distinguishable product from, or I I should say, I have confidence that there will be a distinguishable product from the mega grows that continue to emerge. Like I was just talking about this with my buddy, the sales in Florida in the legal markets over the 15 or whatever number of licenses there are, are fucking staggering. And when you think about the quantities and the volumes that these 15 players or whatever the number is um, have to come up with, like at some point there has to be a shift from somebody that can tend to a more manageable number of lights with a team. Like, I don't know. It's hard. I don't, I really don't know how to answer that just because I want to vote for like the small garden and the craft guy in the long term. But it's scary when, when you think about like teams that just fucking consistently crush and kill like jungle boys. Now, like I'm, I'm not a big consumer of their product. I've only sampled it maybe a couple of times in the years and I'm kind of a snob. I just want to smoke my own regardless of what's on the table. So I don't know, like, they do it so proper and so big and their process is so dialed and technology continues to get better and blah, 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 blah. It's just like those big gardens are set up for call it like a real high level of quality product. And the nature of the market is that like, think about how many people consume like Budweiser, you know, it's like 85% or something like that. You know, that type of product offering where it's like, you know, there's there's only so much room for quote unquote the craft grow when like the megas are doing it pretty damn good. You know what I mean? So like for me, quality can be scaled, but I don't know how much quality you lose with the availability of technology and inputs in today's market. It's daunting, like honestly, as like a craft grower, because like the volumes, like I think 35,000 ounces, almost 3,500 were sold by just true leave. I think it was in one week was the recent report, you know, like Florida again. Yeah. In Florida. So like 3.5 mil at a hundred dollars an ounce, which some of those are definitely more, not many of them are below. And that's a week. And like, certainly somebody in the craft world, the caregiver world ain't coming with those kind of bucks. (laughs) So like, you know, like it's it's daunting to look at those players because it's not like in the case of Jungle Boys, they're putting out like a terrible product. Some people be, might throw them shade or whatever, but like I salute them, dude. They've, they produce a hell of a, a product, a hell of a brand, and they're doing it on a large scale in mega markets. So like fucking props to, to that slice of, of the market. Hopefully there remains room for the the tedious guy who just loves weed and wants to produce a hell of a product. And you know, like even like today, like you can, you can find a great product if you walk into Walmart and, and buy it. But there are people that are like, Hey, I want to shop at the local thing that's going on in my community and buy my pie from this lady down the street versus like go to the bakery at 
whole foods, you know, like, so there will be that slice of the market. And as the, you know, state by state and federally, the markets continue to mature and emerge. We'll see what those final splits are, but typically across most product categories, like when a market's mature, you have a portion and an area that wants to seek out the craft or the local or farm to table, whatever you want to call it. You know what I mean? Like, and think about like a wine, a, a local, a wine producer that has wine tastings and, you know, offers food on an afternoon, something like that. Like hopefully there's room for the cannabis grower that people can come onto the property and check out the farm and like, or, or whatever it is, you know, at, at, at some point, because the experience is hopefully going to be important enough to, uh, like I said, a, a large enough portion of the market that it's not just saturated by certain big names that have consolidated up all the projects across all the states by the time federal goes. Yeah, I agree. So you've told me that one of the things that you feel you continue to need to have, to have success, however you may define that within the space of cannabis are genetics, which is what I feel like is part of what you're doing. You're just going through tons of genetics to select the things that you like. And you and I talked about this a little earlier in regards to maybe it was a papaya cake. I think you said there was like a lemony fino and you liked it. Somebody else might not keep it. And we were talking about how that's the interesting part in the art of selection, if you want to call it that, and finding things that you know resonate with you that would then resonate with others. Do you feel like at some point in going into like the commercial space, it would ever become like a necessity instead of just a passion to continue to do this, to keep yeah, I mean, edge as a brand. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, when GMO first came out, how many gardens had GMO? It's not like a lot of people didn't like it and want it up front, but there's only so much distinction if you're growing the same cut in the same medium under the same lights with the same inputs that you're going to be able to have if you've got the same as the next guy. So like, you know, the market and, and it just translates. It's always been personal for me. Like I said, I always want the largest menu with all the flavors for my own consumption. And that has resonated with other people, but yeah, just in like a general practice sense like you've got to think about some form of differentiation i mean i think everybody's well aware of the supply that currently exists across most cannabis products compared to five years ago or 10 years ago or something like that so when you talk about an increase in that in the significant number how, how are you going to stand out you know and and this isn't like you know for the home grow, no big deal. Do what you want to do. But when you ask specifically, like for a commercial application, like, yeah, you better be hoping that, you know, you can find some keepers that not everybody else has. And the reality is it's going to get out if it's fire enough. I mean, no matter how hard people have tried to like keep a cut under wraps, if it's fire enough, that shit gets out. <laughs> it's like Jurassic Park, you know, nature will find a way. So like, you know, you better have a lot of seeds on deck and you better be willing to like do some R and D like big shout out to 710 labs 
they did it proper where they like selected a few phenos, ran them again and put it to the test. And they asked all of their customers like, Hey, help us pick the winner, you know? And like, who doesn't want to be like, Oh, number three, number three. I love that one. The Terps were this and that. Like if you're a true head and you want to be part of that process, boy, 710 labs sure made a, you know, an appealing way to do that. So yeah, it's definitely important for the long-term cultivation in the commercial world and, you know, traditional markets and whatnot. Like if you want to stay above, then you better be looking for some new genetics. We talked to get privately about you collecting some glass, maybe a little earlier in your career. What are some of your favorite glass artists? WJC is uh, the one that comes to mind immediately. He's always been a standout in his style, the sacred geometry patterns and whatnot. When Everdream was first opening up, we were lucky enough to be friends with some of the people that were going up there a little more regularly. And uh, we got to see a lot of that firsthand when I say we, I mean, my wife and I. And, you know, you develop an appreciation for the accuracy and the skill that these guys can execute these moves with like molten glass and, you know, boro and all this kind of stuff. I just, I've always been attracted to glass pipes. I mean, even, even when I was young, I don't know how many glass pipes and the color change and stuff. Like, you know, it was always, uh, you know, something I was into. And I think it's been part of the culture. So WJC was a recent name, semi-recent, whatever, for me that really like kind of elevated my appreciation for glass and you know all the guys out of out of that studio um Eugene and Nate and Elbow and Quave running in and out of there like there's just a real concentration of talent among these guys for working with what I consider to be a really difficult medium and uh yeah it was just it's really cool seeing how far it's come and you know looking back, being around for kind of the explosion of it. And um, yeah, our glass collection is is fun to, to appreciate. And I mean, the reality is like it all sits on a shelf and I get to look at it and we only smoke out of one pipe. But like, to me, it was, you know, never about just smoking out of it. Like I just appreciate it as art. Like I like to look at it. That's why like, I've never been worried about like trying to resell like my collection or anything like that. Like I might've considered like some of a piece here, a piece there going, but for the most part, like, I enjoy sitting down and looking at all of it. So like, yeah, it's, it's cool. Glasses, glasses, is a lot of fun. Crazy what the prices have done, but certainly kudos to the artists and I'm glad that they got it to where it is. Cool. Do you aspire to learn a different style of cultivation at any point, whether that's organics in a different way, whether that's outdoor or anything of the nature? Yeah. I mean, or, organic has always been, a real draw to me. I, I, <laughs> I'm a nature lover and, and all that aspect. So like um, the other side of it though, is like, I want the fire fire and you know, it, I've been really impressed by a handful of people that can produce the fire fire in organic situations. I haven't ventured down that path. Maybe someday, you know, other styles of growing in Colorado being limited, limited to, uh, you know, plant counts. I haven't pushed the boundaries of, plants per light and really monitoring drybacks and, you know, seven different feedings in a day. And, you know, the, the whole crop steering wave, like I really want to get my hands dirty and uh, play with some of that um, at some point. But, you know, that's, I kind of foresee that as part of the next phase of the journey, whatever that's going to look like. 
Cool. A terp in your garden that you haven't found yet that you want. A terp in my garden that I haven't found that I want. I don't know. It's hard, man, because like, how do you describe what you haven't ever smelled? Like, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know what that looks like, but I will tell you that like with every new cross, like there's some variation of like, man, this is fucking funky or, or whatever it is. So for me, it's, it's the hunt. And uh, what I want is to keep hunting and keep popping seeds and experiencing those new variations. Best ski spot in Colorado without giving away yours, maybe. Best ski spot in Colorado. Wow. Ask Sam. Sam has had a season like I've never seen before with all the powder that guy has got. But uh, I had a really good time recently at Highlands, which is a resort next to Aspen Mountain. And uh, we hiked for some turns that were delicious. It was like a Wednesday and it was like 18 inches fresh. And I was with one homie, it was Taylor, the other side of Mile High Melts. And uh, yeah, we we hiked for some turns and got some delicious ones. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I saw I saw yeah, the Instagram world. Uh, yeah. 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 By the way, thanks for the recommendation uh, without knowing it on the Cypress Hill documentary. I actually quite. Yeah, dude, it. what a documentary, man big respect to be real. I mean, just an OG in the game and what he was uh, able to build out of, you know, a shot at a rap career is like a full mega superstar (laughs) personality with the group, but Dr. Green Thumb. And, you know, if there's one, one person in like the celebrity world that like deserves to be part of cannabis, it certainly has to be be real and uh you know send dog and mugs with their first push they were the first ones that were really talking about weed and the injustice behind it and what they saw as a sacrament and a blessing and uh yeah super cool documentary yeah it was and it was also just cool like you're saying to almost as well through their story to see kind of the movement for the legalization and yeah totally I mean, it took me way back. You know, I was, I listened to Cypress Hill before I got stoned. So when I got stoned, it was like, immediately, this is the music that I'm supposed to listen to, (laughs) you know? But yeah, I got to meet them at a show way back when I was in high school and they were signing autographs. I was just a little nerdy white kid, you know, kind of I I saw it. What made me laugh is it was at the Starplex, which it was like here in Dallas. And I literally, I think I just got here when that place was still the Starplex. So that tripped me out. Yeah, that, that's way back, you know, Starplex and Fair Park and all that. I was definitely a concert-going kid. We had a lot of good times, but yeah, the Cypress show back in the day was a good one. Well, cool, man. Last question. If you could hear from someone on the podcast, who would it be? Oh, man. Caught me off guard on that. Dave at David, or sorry, at Rare Extracts has got a really good story. I respect him a lot. He's come a long way in this world, and he's a true passion, has a true passion for the plant and believes in the movement and all that. So, yeah. Well, I appreciate the suggestion. Again, I appreciate your time. Uh, I know we chopped it up for quite a while, but anything else you want to say before we sign off? No, that's it, man. I really appreciate your time as well. Thanks for having me. And uh, I'm sure we'll uh, be in chat soon. Hopefully we can get a smoke session in person. (laughs) Yeah, that would be dope, man, for sure. Hopefully I can make it out that way. But yeah, for anybody who hung with us this long, we appreciate you and we'll catch you next time. Yeah, thanks. Peace, buddy. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.